From Eyewitness News, this is Newsmakers. The race is on. Six Democrats are seeking to replace Joe Kennedy as the representative for Massachusetts' 4th Congressional District, which includes Fall River, Taunton, and Attleboro. One of them is Jesse Mermel, a former top aide to Governor Deval Patrick. How would she advocate for the South Coast on Capitol Hill? This week on the first half of Newsmakers, Democrat Jesse Mermel, then... $400 million. That's the price tag on a newly announced development in Pawtucket that would include a minor league soccer stadium. Could it offset the loss of the Paw Sox? On the second half of Newsmakers, a closer look at the proposed Tidewater Landing Project. Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White. Joining me on the program, as always, Eyewitness News reporter Ted Nisi. Jesse Mermel, Democratic candidate for Congress from Massachusetts. Welcome to the program. It's good to have you. Thank you for having me. So uh, first question, very basic. Why do you want to represent Massachusetts in the U.S. House? So I'm running for Congress because the people in places that we love and the progress that we need are under attack. And I think that the people of the 4th Congressional District deserve a Congresswoman who won't just fight back against the hate and the backwards thinking that's coming out of Washington, but will also fight for a future that we all deserve. And I've built a 20-year career doing just that, leading on reproductive health at Planned Parenthood, leading on the local level, particularly around climate change as a member of the select board in Brookline, serving, as you mentioned, with Governor Patrick as community communications director, and for the past five years, leading the progressive business community in Massachusetts, doing the work that we know is good for people, good for workers, the environment, and equity, but also good for business and good for the economy. And I want to bring that experience to the 4th Congressional District in Washington. So when you talk about the future, what would be the, if you were elected to Congress, what would be the single uh, policy initiative, the single most important policy initi initiative you'd want to pursue, and would that change depending on who's in the Oval Office and who controls Congress? It has to, right? I mean, if the Democrats fail to take back the Senate, ideally with a 60-plus vote majority, or the White House, the entire agenda has to change. We need to fight back, particularly if, God forbid, Donald Trump is still in the White House. But I'm going to Washington with a lens of how do we tackle economic inequality and, mass and uh, social mobility. And to me, there are two big ways that I want to do that. I know you asked for one, but I'm going to ask for your <laughs> indulgence. Um, I've spent a good part of my career working on women's reproductive health, and Roe versus Wade is under attack like we've never seen before. I want to fight to make sure that we preserve Roe, that we codify Roe in federal law, that we repeal Hyde, and we make sure that Title X family planning money is back to a real family planning money, not the way uh, that the Trump administration has decimated it. And it's because the number one determinant of whether or not a woman can control her economic future is whether or not she can determine if and when she starts a family. And the second piece of it is paid family and medical leave. I was proud to be one of the eight people the legislature in Massachusetts asked to come to the table to negotiate what is now the strongest paid family medical leave law in the country, and not this fake paid family medical leave law that Ivanka Trump wants to pass, where you take time off now to start a family or deal with an illness, but you're robbing your own Social Security decades down the road. Real paid family and medical leave that helps particularly low income, particularly people of color in the workplace to have the opportunity to start that family, to deal an unfortunate medical incident in their family and not have to worry about the threat of losing their job or personal financial ruin. I want to talk about the first issue you mentioned. Uh, you, you mentioned abortion and you were head of Planned Parenthood Massachusetts. I was the head of external me. affairs. Head of external yeah. affairs, thank you. Not looking for a promotion. Um, I, didn't, <laughs> I appreciate yeah. that. Uh, humility, always good in <laughs> politics. There was an interesting New York Times piece the other day about 
divides over strategy in the in the reproductive rights movement. And one of the things that I, I was thinking about was how Democrats used to say abortion was safe, legal, should be safe, legal, and rare. Some Democrats. Some Democrats. Sure. And that has become controversial. And I was wondering what you think about that framing of the issue as someone who's worked on that issue yourself. That framing is antiquated and deserves to be long, long in the rearview mirror. You know, abortion is a, a part of medical care that is safe and legal, absolutely, and should be accessed whenever an individual feels it is appropriate for their lives, period, full stop. Um, I think that the stigma that we have long seen around abortion does a great disservice to women and their families and anyone who needs to access reproductive care. And by the way, it's part of what's created an environment of danger for people who are uh, working in this space and seeking to access care. The 25th anniversary of the clinic shootings in Brookline is coming up in a few weeks. And if you think about the way that rhetoric dangerous, inflammatory rhetoric contributed to that act of violence um, and the rhetoric that is boiling up around the country, not just around issues of reproductive health care, but on all sorts of issues. Um, it really makes me fear for what is possible. Dr. Tiller was mur murdered in Kansas just over a decade ago. And so language like that that Democrats, some Democrats used to use long, long ago, um, I think needs to stay way back there. There are still some pro-life Democrats on both sides of the border down in this, this sure, part of southern New are. England. Do you, do you think there's room in the party for Democrats who, who look at that issue very differently from you? Listen, I fully respect any person's individual opinion on this issue or any others. Um, but on something that has uh, long been settled constitutional law and something that um, we know is so absolutely vital to people's health care and to people's ability to plan their future and control their economic destiny. Um, I believe that the law of the land and the approach that we apply to everyone, not anyone's individual beliefs or individual choices that they might make, needs to be uh, broad and firmly in the camp of being pro-choice. The race to replace Congressman Joe Kennedy has been a dash to the left, it seems, and uh, the southern part of the fourth district, Attleboro, Taunton, Fall River, and the towns in between aren't nearly as progressive as Brookline. Um, how do you resonate with the voters down here when all of the candidates are coming from Newton and Brookline? Sure. So I, I've lived in Brookline for 20 years, but I actually grew up in a small farming town in rural Pennsylvania. It was a town of 5,000 people, the biggest town in the county. Fall River is the big city compared to where I grew up. And uh, you know, where I grew up decades ago, generations ago, coal was king and then died, and decades ago, dairy was king and died. And when I was in elementary school, the paper factory at the end of Main Street lost a shift and lost another shift and was closed by the time that I was in high school. And I fully understand that that isn't fishing or jewelry or textiles, but the lived experience is the same. So I can appreciate that people are going to see Brookline next to my name on a ballot and make some assumptions. But my upbringing, my background, my shared lived experience is much more in line with the southern part of the district than it is where I've happened to have laid my head the past 20 years. I want to ask you about um, the cap on state and local income taxes. This is something where Democrats sometimes we don't know where they'll land on this mm -hmm. because on the one hand, uh, President Trump took it away in the tax law and it, it's somewhat progressive to take it away because you, you know, it helps a lot of upper middle class families. On the other hand, a lot of the people who benefit from that are in this part of the country. Do you think that should be put back in place, or do you think it's right to, to get rid of it? 
So Democrats have been working to get rid of it on a temporary basis with the eye toward taking back control of all of Washington and doing more comprehensive reform to the president's absolutely atrocious tax plan that we know disproportionately benefited the wealthy and corporations. I do think it makes sense uh, to make that temporary change, but in the context of driving towards larger systemic change. So you would put back in place a full deduction for state and local income taxes? I think it makes sense. I realize that there are some wealthy people who would benefit, but I do think that it makes sense for lower income people um, who would, I think, see a greater benefit from it. We taped this on a Friday morning and a great jobs report uh, came out this morning. The country added 266,000 jobs. Bill Clinton's top aide used to fam famously say it's the economy, stupid. Does President Trump deserve credit for the robust economy? Not really. So much of this economic growth is based on work that was done during the Obama administration, um, and he happens to be benefiting from it. And by the way, we've seen that with presidents who you take know, over. You know, people at home right now are scoffing at the television that, that you're saying that Obama should d uh, deserves the credit. You're a Democrat. Of course she's going to say that. Why can't you give the, the, the current president some credit for where the economy is right now? Because the current president has put in, a tax, put in place a tax plan that we just talked about that is making it incredibly hard for some of the people who even voted for him to get ahead. If you're a farmer, if you're in, you know, working class families, the president's tax cut, after he campaigned and promised to help those working families is just putting money back in the pockets of wealthy people and corporations. Corporations that said, when we get this tax cut, we're going to give it back to our workers. And all of the research is showing that that just hasn't turned out to be true. Um, listen, I am sure that there are tiny examples that we could point to that show that President has done something that has yielded some amount of economic growth. But I do not think that he deserves credit for those numbers. I think the groundwork was laid by President Obama. And I also think it's important to recognize that the incredible detrimental um, things that he have, has done around immigration, around race, um, those have economic impacts, right? When we're losing workers because of what's happening around immigration, when people don't feel like they can fully participate in society, that has negative economic impacts. And that looks beyond numbers, but I think it's just as important to the conversation about the future of this nation's economy. All right, Jesse Mermel, we, we're going to do a quick rapid fire section. Great. Okay, I know you enjoy that. I'm we delighted. do this with all candidates. It's uh, just to move through some topics very quickly. Is there we don't like something electric them. on my chair? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Oh, maybe. <laughs> You'll find Stay out. Stay tuned. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> Jesse, you for or against term limits for members of Congress? Against, because we already have term limits in elections. Uh, uh, who do you like for U.S. Senate uh, in the Markey Kennedy race? Whoever wins the Democratic primary. So you're not going to <laughs> profile and courage there, Jesse? Yep. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> should the federal government legalize recreational marijuana? Yes. And uh, who do you like for president right now? Whoever is the Democratic nominee. Uh, what I'm noticing there is you did not name your former boss, Governor Deval Patrick. How come? Um, you know, I absolutely adore my former boss, and it was a great honor to work for him. I was actually with um, Diane Patrick, his wife, last night, who's endorsed our campaign. Um, I'm really focused on winning the 4th Congressional District. We have an incredibly strong field of candidates, several of them from here in Massachusetts. Um, I know the type of magic that Deval Patrick can work. I have seen that man pull more rabbits out of hats than I can count, um, and I am really pleased that he is in this race. Did it, did it surprise you when he announced it? Let me ask it a different way. Did he reach out to you beforehand? 
Um, it depends by what you mean by beforehand. Immediately before, no. Before, before, when he was originally considering it, yes. And I was actually on the road with him a bit, uh, okay. traveling around the country as he was considering it. But then, of course, Mrs. Patrick uh, wound up having a, a cancer diagnosis mm -hmm. that the governor's talked about publicly. Thankfully, she is well now, and I think that was a significant part of his reconsideration. But no, he did not reach out to me if what you're talking about is in the past several weeks. It okay. did, and no. we don't want to spend too much time. But it did seem like some of the Deval Patrick diaspora was uh, taken by surprise when he did jump in. It was so late and everything. Were you? Did you see that coming? I didn't, but in fairness, I, I've been in a little bit of a bubble, so I don't know that I'm your uh, yeah. your best gauge of the Deval Patrick diaspora for this particular <laughs> fair, thing. Fair enough. Let's go back to the Congress race. You've talked about uh, being an advocate for single-payer health care. Um, you were on with Steph Murray on the Politico podcast uh, this week. You know, that has, that has tied some Democrats in knots on the presidential campaign show this week, particularly the question, would you make everyone get rid of their private health insurance even if they like what they have now? Where do you come down on that? What if someone says, I like my plan, I really don't want to get switched to Jesse Mermel's single payer plan, even if she says it's better. Pretty sure it's not going to get named after me. <laughs> okay, just Fair just enough. a hunch that I have. <laughs> aim high. Um, aim high. Yeah, exactly. They they like to name stuff after a freshman member yeah. of Congress. <laughs> um, listen. As I walk around this district, as I drive around this district, as I talk to folks, the number one thing people talk to me about around health care is cost. The cost of an emergency room visit, the cost of prescription drugs, even just the fear of cost that people might bear if something unexpected happens. And I believe that the best way to address those concerns and other concerns around access um, is to drive in the direction of Medicare for All or single payer. Um, I think it's really, really important for us to have the conversation about how we cannot afford to do this, right? What is the cost of not doing this? Right now, we're already spending about uh, $1.5 trillion a year on health care in America when you combine all of the various programs uh, that touch this. That's not including the cost of lost productivity from people who are sick and not receiving adequate health care. So I think we need to frame this in the cost of what would it mean if we didn't do this. I also think it's important to have a conversation about politics in the context of health care, and I think this is relevant to your question. For Medicare for All to move forward in a quick timeline, we would need control of the House by Democrats, a 60-plus vote uh, majority in the Senate, and control of the White House. And let me be clear, I'm going to bust my butt to make that happen uh, over the next, how long do we have until the election? Yeah. <laughs> I can't, I, I don't even know what day it is, yeah. but however long it is between now and November of 2020. Um, but it's unlikely. If we somehow fail to achieve that, <laughs> then I think it's incredibly important that we have a plan to address the pain points that people in the 4th Congressional District and across the country are feeling around fears of cost, fears of access, fear of what may happen to them and to their families if they were to experience a catastrophic health event. And so I think that we need to be moving in the direction of Medicare for all. I fully intend to help us build a political climate um, where we can do that swiftly. Um, but if it is not possible in an expedient way, then I think we do need to put, uh, put practices in place so that we can address those pain points quickly. I know we're over break. I'm just going to push the break a little bit more here uh, by another minute quickly on, on immigration. Um, some have called for the abolishment of ICE. Mm -hmm. Do you agree? I do. Why? There are functions in ICE that are absolutely vital and must continue to be performed. Uh, drug trafficking, human trafficking. So who picks up that responsibility if ICE is gone? ICE is part of the Department of Homeland Security, um, and those are functions that uh, pre-existed ICE in various other places. ICE has only been around since immediately after September mm -hmm. 11th. This is not some long-standing institution in our country. But what ICE has done around 
truly un-American and inhumane actions on our southern border, particularly with children and families and the culture that seems to have permeated that institution, it has to go. I don't think it has earned the trust of the American people. I don't think it has earned the trust of people who center justice in their thinking. There are core functions, like I said, that must be absorbed either by DHS or other organizations that might make sense, but ICE as an entity no longer should have any place um, in our government. Jesse Mermel, Democratic candidate for the 4th Congressional District in Massachusetts. Really good having you on the program. Thank Thanks you for, for having me. Us. I appreciate it. When we come back, a $400 million redevelopment project proposed for Pawtucket. And no, it's not the Paw Sox. Stay with us. You're watching <laughs> Newsmakers. Welcome back to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White. Uh, the city and state leaders, uh, city and state leaders, earlier this week announced a $400 million redevelopment plan for downtown Pawtucket, including a 7,500-seat uh, professional soccer stadium. It's called Tidewater Landing. It would be the largest development project in Pawtucket history. And officials claim that it would pay for itself. You're looking at renderings right now on the screen of the soccer stadium, and there are two other areas you can see on the screen uh, that would be included in that, including the old Apex site that we're all familiar with as we drive uh, up 95. All right, joining us to talk about this project and how it came to be is WPRI.com reporter Eli Sherman, and of course we are continued to be joined by Ted Nisi. Um, the first thing people are probably wondering when they read your story on WPRI.com or heard us talking about it here is, oh, they found something to do with McCoy Stadium when the Pawsocks leave, and the answer to that is? There's no McCoy. Uh, that is not part of this uh, proposal that's on the table. And um, you're right. What's interesting about this whole thing is that it came out of a RFP process that was designed for McCoy and surrounding areas. But uh, the developer came in, and for whatever reasons that we, we haven't heard yet, uh, McCoy was not part of what they wanted to do. So the three parcels that they want to develop develop on, as you saw from the renderings, are along the uh, Seekonk River. What were they saying? Because you were at the press conference, Eli, where they announced all this. What um, I was actually on jury duty, folks. Otherwise, I would have gone. I promise. <laughs> Civic duty. Civic duty. Um, <laughs> so what, what, what did you hear? I'm sure it came up from the reporters at the press conference. Like, what about McCoy? We're still waiting for that. What, did, what were the officials saying about that? Yeah, I asked uh, uh, the mayor, Don Grebian, that that very question, and he uh, said, you know. The discussions about McCoy are very much ongoing. There are some um, there are some other proposals out there floating around that came in through the RFP process, uh, including baseball. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I asked him again yesterday uh, uh, during a taping of um, uh, show on public radio, and he he actually didn't rule that off the table at all. So, who knows? Maybe in addition to soccer, which is sort of the central focus of this new development. Maybe another wow, team sports mecca. In yeah, Pawtucket, really. Pawtucket. Yeah. So four hundred million dollars for this proposal. Um, people are going to want to know. All right, how is it being paid for? What's the sort of nutshell description of where the money is coming from, and what what's the skin in the game for taxpayers? Yeah. So the the big project is going to cost four hundred million dollars, and what the ask is is that the developer will come in with about three hundred and ten million of that and then the additional amount of money will be asked from uh, taxpayers to float bonds. They'll sell bonds to bondholders who will then cover the additional $90 million for the project. 
I should say that state officials are very adamantly saying that taxpayers will not be on the hook for this $90 million. That money will come from the uh, revenue that's generated from taxes from the de development. And if uh, the money's not there, then the bondholders can't come after taxpayers. And a portion of that is going to be Pawtucket, but it's the lion's share. My understanding from your story was the, of the public investment, the 70 to 90 million estimate. That'll be state That's right. money. Yeah. Yep. All right, Ted. So I have a question for you in the political prism, since you are a political editor. Uh, Speaker Mattiello was against the plan mm -hmm. to keep the Paw Sox in Pawtucket. The Paw Sox plan had ta taxpayers chipping in $38 million for the stadium representing about 46% of the uh, $83, million uh, $83 million cost. You just heard Eli, 70 to $90 million, uh, which is 20% of the $400 million investment. But the speaker was there. Uh, for the big announcement, yep. which prompts many to ask, what gives? Well, I think a couple things. I think one thing is, I think Speaker Mattiello, uh, I mean, uh, Mark Patinkin had that really tough column in the Projo recently, yes. laying the lion's share of the blame uh, for the Pawsocks leaving Rhode Island on Speaker Mattiello. And I think we've now seen the shift that a lot of us expected, which is it's gone from people saying, I don't want, I don't like the idea of spending money on it, those people being vocal, to they're actually leaving for Worcester, and people are like, whose fault is this? Why? Who let this team go? And the Speaker Mattiello is taking a lot of the blame for that because of how he handled it. So I think it was important to him politically to show, I'm here. I'm not against Pawtucket. I was just against the stadium deal for various reasons, looking out for taxpayers. But the other piece, and I think in fairness to Mattiello, is this is structured differently. They're, they're saying the right. 70 to $90 million from the public will go toward infrastructure. Clearly, infrastructure to help make the stadium a success, and I'm not trying to underplay that, but the $38 million from the Pawsox plan was literally to build the stadium, and it was going to be a publicly owned stadium. So I, I do think this looks a little more like what we've seen Massachusetts do. We always talk about how Gillette Stadium didn't get any public money, but they spent public money on all the roads that we used to get into Gillette Stadium. Plus, this doesn't have to be litigated at the General Assembly again, right? Because they already... They already did that. This thing is just plug and play at this point, unlike Paw Sox where they had to you know, hold hearings. and all. We're not going to have hearings on this redevelopment project. That's right. If people remember back to a couple years ago when the Paw Sox came out with their proposal, um, <clears throat> it, it went before the Senate Finance Committee for months, and then the House Finance Committee met on it as well. Mm. And, and the Paw Sox, meanwhile, had, had told the state, listen, we're going to go talk to other towns while you're figuring this out. And they did, and ultimately when the House, led by Mattiello, came out with a revised plan, the Paw Sox had already created a deal up in Worcester, and that's the route they went. I want to talk about soccer. We have a few minutes left. Uh, Hannah, if you could bring up the chart that Eli had in his uh, article earlier. That what you're looking at on the screen right now is uh, popularity of youth sports uh, in Rhode Island. And the one line in the top that you can see growing there, if uh, if I'm reading that right from a distance, that is soccer, right? Uh, so soccer in youth sports anyway is very popular, but uh, you looked at this issue. What are you hearing from, I guess, experts in the field? Are they going to be able to put butts in the seats at a soccer stadium in Pawtucket? Are, is there enough interest in Rhode Island to fill a 7,500-seat stadium? Yeah, well, if you ask soccer advocates, it's a no-brainer, right? <laughs> they, they say, yes, this is the sport of the future. Um, as you see, among youth, it's fast growing, um, and and I think that there's also a demographic at play um, in Pawtucket, in Providence, in Central Falls. There's the highest rate of foreign-born residents, which, as we know, soccer is much more popular in other parts of the world than it is in the United States. So there's a demographic uh, demographics at play there too, um, but. 
you know, I, I think that one of the things that I looked at is, okay, how are the Revs doing? The Revs, the, the New England Revolution, the, professional the, uh, the soccer MLS team. soccer yep. team up in, yep. they play in Gillette, which is only 20 miles away. And um, their, their attendance has been slipping uh, about 15% over the last five years or so. And, and I think that um, if you ask soccer advocates again, they'll say, oh, that stadium is not meant for uh, soccer. It's meant for football because that's where the Patriots play. But, you know, <clears throat> we can only look to what we know in the region, and, and that's sort of our, our understanding, so we'll see. The other question I have right now on all this, you know, we, we have all covered splashy news conferences before with big numbers put forward, beautiful renderings, you know, but it's a lot cheaper to do a rendering than the actual project. Mm. And so, you know, we now need to see what is, I think, the, you know, 120 days they have to put the actual pen to paper on the, right. the terms of this deal. Fortuitous Partners, the company behind it, needs to find investors to put up that money they need to get to 310 you know we've seen before numbers can come down etc Len Ladaro at URI is already beating that drum so I think you know it's also important to be clear about what's you know there is not yet an agreement on paper to build that 400 million dollar complex there is an agreement to go forward with the effort to figure out if they can build that 400 million dollar <laughs> so project. well you've covered this stuff before Ted e economic development projects don't always have a great history in Rhode Island what kind of headwind do you see this project facing potentially? well I think I think you know they, they have already leaped a big hurdle as we were talking about because it doesn't need new General Assembly approval because they've already created a program to mm. put new tax revenue toward a project if they can say it was generated by the project. But I think I think people are understandably skeptical down here uh, about, about big projects and, and they're going to want to kick the tires. I think they're going to face a lot of scrutiny from the press and from uh, citizens about, you know, how is it structured? What risk is there on the other end? But I did just do that big story in the Providence Place Mall and it is important to point out that that did cover the bonds. You know, mm. that project, they sold it a certain way and it worked. You know, it doesn't mean every project will, but not every economic development project in Rhode Island goes sideways. It, they, it depends if you put it together well. In 20 seconds left, Apex is no sure thing either, right? I think that that may be the biggest thing that changes what this looks like going forward because, as people know, the Apex Center is privately owned. Um, in order to get that for this project, the developers or the city and state have to buy it, and they have not put out um, eminent domain as a way to get that done. Eli Sherman, Ted Nisi, we want to read more on that project. It's on WPRI.com. I'm Tim White. We'll see you next week.